Hey, Pronounces, welcome back to the Printavo Pronounces podcast. I'm your host, Bruce from Printavo. We got Mr. Stephen Fair, got a Campus Inc. We got an awesome guest today, Mark Kudre, part two. We brought him back. Why? Because part one, as you watched, or if you didn't watch, um, we went off into a tangent, but that's okay because it was really cool. It was scaling up to four and a half million in sales. And just how some of that stuff is really related to a company we talked to, swag.com, that they did to grow sales and really kick it off. So, it's not like this is, um, you know, uh, old stuff by any means. Anyway, I actually found some of the things separately that you talked about that I didn't know how deep you wanted to go into of like thinking about buying other shops, especially locally or different types of like decoration or, you know, strategic things. And I was like, ooh. I, I think it's cool to hear from Mark as far as um, different types of buyers. Uh, we talked about that on the episode of like selling your family, strategic acquisition, M and A, things that are like red flags you have to watch out for. Super great episode. But Bruce, have you heard of Supercolor? Tell me more. Supercolor is the world's best heat transfer. One of our podcast sponsors made by screen printers for screen printers. Supercolor understands firsthand the pressures and expectations of the screen printing business. That's why they pride themselves on being super fast and super easy. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a pickle and Supercolor always comes through. Uh, we've been using them quite a bit. Their color gamut is awesome. And we use their heat transfer or their uh, their transfers on really nice garments like North Face. Experience them for yourself using promo code PRINTABO15 and get 15% off your for order. Supercolor the pickle. Have you heard of <laughs> <laughs> Multicraft underscore daddy? I, I have Am a I couple doing it times. Right? You you always do multicraft. Multicraft Daddy is now at 466 followers. Thank you to everybody who is shouting out Dave and Multicraft. If you need ink supplies or a daddy, Multicraft screen printing and digital supplies for over 50 years have been providing you with top brands at competitive prices. Also, <clears throat> mention Printable Pod and you will receive an extra 10% off your first order. Is 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 Multicraft Daddy going to be at Print Hustlers? Yes. Dave will be there so you guys can take pictures. I'm excited. He said he's wearing New Balance's socks. He's going to be in full dad garb. It's going to be great. Bruce, 1900hotstuff.com. If you need a solution to improve efficiency and reduce costs in your art department, call GraphX or go to 1900hotstuff.com. GraphXSource offers industry-leading outsource options for your shop by truly becoming a part of your team. They plug and play with Printavo. And when it comes to SEPs, mockups, creative order management, embroidery, digitizing, back office admin, and customer service, there's no better company in our industry to work with. With over 30 years in the game, they really know and understand shop needs and have a proven track record of success. We just on boarded our first back office admin that's going to help us build online stores Woo. so we got Jeannie and we got nancy Jeannie um, and they're like your flexible art department so we're getting a lot busier and so we're going to flex and, and, and get a little bit more help from them so thanks graphx uh, mention printavo pod for 50 percent off your first vector sep or embroidery order bruce have you heard of easy way uh now i have Easy Way, uh, thanks Easy Way. You shouldn't spend all day cleaning dirty screens. Easy Way's line of environmentally conscious chemicals will get the job done faster, more efficiently, and will cost you a fraction of the cost per screen. I imagine they're going to be at Print Hustlers and ISS. Thanks, Alex and the team at Easy Way. You all rock, and we appreciate you. Woo. Let's get to the show. When we downsize my 
print production facility. We went from 16,000, sold off all the equipment, went and took everything else and put it into 6,000 square feet and figured, okay, we'll sell this stuff off and get to it. Well, that was 11 years ago. There's still tons of stuff. But the cool thing is there was 50 years of archived T-shirts. And I went out on eBay and looked up some of the shirts that we printed that are in pristine plastic bags for 40 years. And they're selling for $500, dollars $700 what? a shirt. There's a retirement. Exactly. Original Apple computer shirts, the very first shirts that Apple ever printed. Uh, Grateful Dead shirts from 1977 and 78 that were done for one concert only. Uh, I, there was one shirt that was sold for $600 and it was completely trashed. And this was, I've got pristine, never been touched, water-based metallic on black. It's just amazing. You so, should, um, at the trade shows, you should get a museum. You should get like a, but like behind glass, like the Met Gala. Oh, the gala of screen printing. Well, that, that, that's what used to happen at the Golden Squeegee Awards is before they had, you know, security there, stuff was getting stolen all the time. You know, shirts and things that I printed, the very first Nakona shirts, I've got originals of those. Um, they got stolen from the, the award um, gallery. Golden Squeegee. Golden. It's now the Golden Image Awards was. I don't know what they do do now if they even do it now we need well, to get farragut golden squeegee no i need the opposite of a golden squeegee <laughs> uh, plastic squeegee <laughs> yeah, yeah i don't know the the one with two two <laughs> 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 put that on a trophy uh, or not. um so mark having you back because last episode we 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 went down a few rabbit holes um and we even posted the podcast it's gotten a lot of really good feedback and so i don't even I think know if it was a rabbit hole. it was like a rocket ship in the right it was in a the rocket left ship direction. of a rabbit hole <laughs> in the left but right direction but yes we we i'm gonna i'm gonna time box this right because there's two parts of this there's there's the part of what is my business worth and how do I get the maximum value in setting it up? And then there's a part of how to find the right buyer to be able to get the maximum worth of it. Right. Okay. So those are the two, the two frames for us to, to talk about this. So the first part let's talk about are what are the, the factors that actually affect valuation and and maybe we can go through these because some of these things I don't really know the difference of either. You know, you talk about EBITDA, free cash flow. Maybe Farag, you know these now. I've been going through the fundraising stuff, but <laughs> let's go back a year. I mean, this is super interesting, right? So let's Mark, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn you loose here. All right. So let's talk about free cash flow. Yeah. Right. Free cash flow is um, non-existent in the screen print world. What free cash flow means is You've generated profit in your business. You've paid yourself. You've paid all of your bills and everything that's due. You've invested whatever you need to invest in the growth of your business. And what's left over is free cash flow. Everybody in this business, when they start out, reinvests everything they've got. Any available penny goes back into the business to buy new toys, uh, automatic equipment, new flash carry units, reclaiming units you know, direct to screen, all that stuff. So you're progressively piecemealing, mealing your growth of your business over time as you get bigger and you start expanding 
and you do more and more business. You take in every job that comes along and you end up having to buy more production capability because you don't have enough to produce the work that you've got. The problem is that the work that they're doing doesn't have enough margin and is not being produced effectively enough to generate free cash flow because they don't know what free cash flow is. And, you know, you guys have been in business for a number of years now, and these terms, um, they're not well known. And this is exactly why I switched my perspective from developing technical innovation 15 years ago to de developing business competence and understanding of what it takes to generate profit, to pay yourself, and to have free cash flow. And what is the what exactly is that formula to? So it's it's you said it's top line revenue minus all of the expenses for the year minus owner. So making sure the owner takes pay. Anything else? It's it's profit that you haven't taken out of the business, right? Like that's still sitting there, right? Well, like after exactly. You've so you've got if you borrow money to buy new equipment, if you do a lease or something like that, you're paying that lease off or you're paying that debt off with future cash flow. So this is one of the reasons why businesses, they're showing a profit, but they don't have any cash because you're using that cash to pay the principal portion and the interest portion, uh, not the interest, but the principal portion of the loan. So let's say so, you buy, a, let's do, do an example. If you bought yeah. a house and you put a 30-year mortgage on the house, what people don't realize is by the time that you pay that house back, you will have bought the house three times. 200% is interest and 100% is the principal that you borrowed, which is what you actually bought the house for. So it's like the banks and the mortgage companies, they're all in on you know loaning you money because they're going to make a ton of money off of you and it's going to enslave you to pay that debt off over the year. Well, and how and do you that's the myth, oh, sorry, that's the myth of buying a home, Bruce, right? That's the myth. I think the myth is the the maintenance problems. <laughs> well, because uh, yeah, you don't you don't feel it, or you don't actualize. Like you don't feel it, and you think you're making money or you're building equity, when really, unless you're there for thirty years, you're not. I almost look at this as like I would always ask, like, why do farmers get new equipment at the end of the year, right? Um, or they just keep buying bigger tractors or keep doing that. That's no different in our industry. It's the, it's the myth of taking 179 accelerated depreciation, right? So you're, you're taking the depreciation in advance of paying it off. So let's say you have $100,000 of profit and um, you decide, okay, I need to buy $100,000 worth of equipment. And the, the government allows you to write off that full value. Well, what that means, and again, this is basic business, is the write-off value is the taxation rate. So if you're paying 33%, you're getting a 33% discount to buy that equipment, right? And so uh, essentially it's costing you $66,000 or $67,000 of your actual profit to buy that equipment that's worth 100000 and so it counts to reduce the tax value, but the cash flow is still going out. One of the things that needs to happen here is I need to do an episode on cash flow and what cash flow means. 
and how what what that means to your business so you can make better decisions and the consequences of those decisions, not for the moment, but for mm-hmm. the long term. It It's almost like, okay, if you were to have that $100,000 and you paid the taxes on it, okay, burn 30 grand, it's going to, you're going to be sick to your stomach, but you're going to have $66,000 sitting there that is now profit. And one would argue if you need that equipment, you could even finance it per se, or you could actually do a long-term depreciation, which is actually maybe better for your business over time. Is that, is that what you would be suggesting? There is a whole strategy around lease, buy, finance, leverage, all of that kind of stuff. It really depends on what your long-term strategy is. And the long-term strategy is what is your exit plan? Right. So if you're planning to sell your business, I'm going to every decision I make is what are the, what decision will maximize the value at the time of sale? So Bruce had mentioned, I don't know what EBITDA is. EBITDA is earnings before interest, depreciation, uh, allocate and allocation. EBITDA, right? Interest, interest before uh, earnings tax- before. Earnings before, yeah, earnings before interest, interest, taxes, depreciation, and allocations, right? EBITDA. Amortization? I don't know the difference between Amortizations, yeah. Or allocations, amortizations, it's the same same thing. But essentially what it is is it's looking at all your future obligations that are there. And, um, you know, this is one way to accelerate the value of your business. As long as you understand what your EBITDA value is, you're going to get a multiple of that. And right now for businesses below 10 million in our industry, um, that EBITDA valuation is three to four times. So whatever EBITDA is, if your EBITDA is $100,000, which in our industry for most businesses is not going to be that much, um, it's going to be three to four times that on the top end. That's the top end. And there's all kinds of um, other factors that are involved. Like, do you have systems involved? How involved is the owner? How much of the uh, operation of the business is based on the owner's relationships to the, the accounts? What's the churn rate of your existing accounts? What's your net growth rate, right? I had a, a client uh, a few years back that was in the two, two and a half million dollar range. And they were saying, I asked them, how much did you grow last year? And they said, well, we grew our customer base 7%. I said, really? And he goes, yeah, it's kind of hard, but we grew at 7%. And I said, well, let's, let's take a look at this and figure it out. So I calculated the churn rate and the churn rate is the, the num- number of accounts that you need to add to replace the number of accounts that are missing that, that went away, plus the growth above that. So when I looked at the churn rate of his, of customer loss, people that only, uh, that ordered one year, but not the next year, that number was 30%. So his net growth rate was 30%, 37%, 30% to replace the, the churn plus 7%. And when you look at the lifetime value of a customer, the first year of a customer is the lowest profitability. So even though they're growing like crazy and think they're moving, they're growing without profitability because the acquisition cost of new clients was so high. And from what I understand too, EBITDA is a good measure because it also helps to 
look at profit from a perspective of if you have uh, capital expenditures like like equipment, essentially you're buying a press. It doesn't cut into that though. Maybe where free cash flow does. So it's like, all right, it, you know, if you made a million dollars, you have all these. Uh, you have to make a a press purchase. It wouldn't affect that purchase because you're spreading that out, and it the the profit margin essentially looks a bit better. And and that's where when we hear about these companies getting acquired, Swag.com, you know, customing, doing all these things, they're looking at that as an arbitrage play, right? Like they're saying, okay, if we bring this much revenue under our roof, we apply our same principles. We might not even care about the old principles. What does what does that look like? Um, but I think to your point, Mark, one thing that you said there was involvement of the owner. Um, can we? elaborate on that cuz I'll just give in my opinion I think that might play a significant amount of weight on if you can even sell your business or not. Absolutely. That's the number one thing I would look at. So when companies like Custom Inc or Halo or you know any of these big guys that are out there that are that are acquiring businesses it's an arbitrage play for sure. And arbitrage is you're looking at the difference between what you can buy it for and what you can sell it for. And so what they're looking at here is they're looking at the customer base and what it costs them to acquire a customer versus what it's going to cost them to acquire that business. And if there's a difference between that, that that is what they're actually negotiating for. They're growing their business based on their current structure of the existing custom ink or whatever. And they're looking at the aging of the customer base and the stability of that base and the value of that base. And if, it, if it's customers that have been there for two years, three years, four years, that is a tremendous deal for them because they can use other aspects that are weaker in the company to drive the value down and acquire that customer base much below an average cost that it would cost them to go out and get new customers. So it's a different kind of thing. So, Mark, when you say acquire customers, those could be B2B customers, D2C customers, online store customers. And I think that's something when we talk about online stores and how if you're not running online stores, well, online stores freeze up your cash flow, I will say, because you collect money up front. Exactly. Uh, But two, it creates this massive net. Right. And so if we support 3000 B2B customers every year, we support 100,000 online store customers every year. Well, you know, a lot of people ask me, why are you in the licensing play and all that is because when I look at the brand that we're building just at the University of Illinois or just at Indiana or just at Sigma Chi, I have a massive customer list. I have data there and I can sell that to someone else long term all by itself. Bruce, when you talked about getting acquired how much were they involved in what you did on the day to day? As far like now or no, when you were yeah. going through the process, like mm-hmm. did did they do a ton of research on what does Bruce Ackerman do besides you know? No, it was around? more so curious. <laughs> it was more so like curious of of uh, the different people. So they wanted to understand the team structure, which was literally the same thing as owner involvement. So it was like. Okay, what managers do you have? Who reports to who? How long have every has every person been here? Um, uh, like you know their name, and then I'm sure they probably did some you know back check and linked in some of the managers, and then they wanted to talk to the different managers um, when time came around because that also helps with the deal too. So like Mark talks about characteristics, 
I think, yeah, for sure. Dollars and cents absolutely on top. So you could do your basic multiple of three to four or something times your EBITDA gets you rough valuation. But underneath, definitely owner involvement, but then also that team structure and especially the management. So is management incentivized to want to keep going forward? Are they excited? Are they good quality? Because then there's these things that happen where it's after that deal could happen. They don't want people to flake off. Um and or leave or be having to deal with all kinds of problems. So if you've got a ready to go plug and play team, then that's valuable. Like that's that to somebody who's bought a company, that's like, whoa, I could just jump in and start to optimize. I could get ready to go. I could start learning for the next six months what's going on and then be able to roll instead of, okay, owner does everything. I'm going to lose half the customers out of the gate. They're going to be disinterested. And honestly, the owner may be kind of a, it depends on who you are, but I think they could be, um, to put this as straightforward as possible, a dick, right? And it's like, if you guys clash and don't agree with vision and where things are going, owner's out, right? And so Mm -hmm. now what? So anyway, it's kind of interesting on those characteristics. So there's something else that, to consider here is that if we step back just a little bit and step away from the valuation and the multiples and all that and look at the type of buyer, look at your business. Is your business below a million? Is your, you know, what size is your business? If your business is below 5 million in revenue, then you're potentially selling to someone that wants to own their own business instead of working for the man. So somebody that maybe was working for a corporation uh, and is sick of that and wants to get into their own business, maybe they sold another business and want to uh, switch industries or something along those lines. That's an owner operator, right? And you can have a self-employment situation where the owner operator is creating a job for themselves. And when you have very small companies that are like five employees, 10 employees, maybe even 15 or 20 employees, it's a self-employment situation. And you can tell this all the time because those types of owners are comparing the value of what they sell on an hourly basis to what they would be making themselves. So they say, well, you know, I, I, I charge $100 an hour for my work and you know, I'm a hundred dollar an hour um, person. Well, that's covering your overhead. That's covering your profit. That's covering your investment. That's covering your wage. But they're just simply looking at it like maybe I was making $30 an hour someplace else, but now I can make a hundred dollars an hour on my own business. So they're not equating it on a fair basis. They're actually stepping putting themselves behind the eight ball, so to speak, right from the very beginning, because they don't understand the the operating structure. Mm-hmm. They just see a business that they can do and they're buying it because of the skill set that they have. They're a good artist. They're a good printer. They're a good salesperson. They're a good chiropractor, whatever it is. They're trading on their professional skill as opposed to their business design or business skill. So, mm-hmm. so, Mark, how often do you see that going south where an owner operator buys out another shop and maybe like, have you seen it go really poorly and yes. it collapsed the business? Like, could you talk a little bit about that? Because, I mean, 
I see. I think a lot of people listening to this are like, okay, I'm under a five million, you know, five million dollars in revenue. I well, one day want to be in a position to sell. If I see these type of owners or people coming in, I might need to run, or these might be people I want to work with. What do you? Well, yeah. again, the whole situation here is begin with the end in mind. Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Begin with the end in mind. The end in mind is what's your exit plan? When you start from the very beginning by doing your homework to determine what it is that you want to sell at some point in the future, you're designing for the sale. And so when you're designing for the sale and someone approaches you, you can say, does this fit my exit model or does it not fit my exit model? And it gives you your all of your negotiating points. The key thing with a negotiation is you never go into a negotiation unless you have an absolutely crystal clear idea of what your end goal is. That's what that's what a negotiation is. But most of the time, the negotiation is, well, I'll give you $100,000. Well, that's ridiculous. I need at least two hundred and fifty. Well, OK, how about one hundred and twenty five? No. How about two twenty five? And you do this, you know, negotiation to split the difference in the middle, which is a horrible way to negotiate. So all of this stuff comes down to who's the fit, who's going to fit for your business, who's going to be successful. Maybe culturally. You, culturally, um, community-wise, the market that aligned. you're selling into. Yeah. Mission, vision, and core value. And and I think um, I'll, I'll shed a little bit. When I bought into Campus Inc., uh, my business partner, Jed, who's still in business with me today, he saw, you know, 20... 22 year old that didn't have much money, but he knew he wanted to build something that I, I could actually grow into. So he built a plan for me where he's like, this is what your salary is going to be year one, year two, year three, year four. Give us how much money you have now. I think I, I was like, here's 30 grand. That's all I got. And then over the next six years, the business actually helps pay that off to them um, with some of that free cash flow. So mm-hmm. to my point, if someone doesn't have isn't able to write a massive check, they can still become an owner of the business if it aligns well. How often, Mark, do you see people writing a single check and saying, okay, we're good? Do you see people doing things like that where it's paid off, like the business helps pay it off? What do you see? Never. Never. You never see what? Never see people writing a check and and the owner walking away. Will the Um, seller finance it? Well, the seller sometimes can finance it. Uh, if if they don't come up with a bunch of money in the on the front end, right? If it's not an SBA loan or some other source of funding, the buyer is hesitant. They don't believe that the seller is representing fully what what's going on, unless you're a sophisticated buyer. And that's a whole other discussion of, on whether it's a sophisticated buyer or whether it's a an unsophisticated buyer. That doesn't mean a stupid or ignorant buyer. So, uh, sophisticated rep- is, an IR- is an internal revenue uh, designation for the level of liquidity of the buyer, the net worth of the buyer. And it used to be it was $250,000 uh, net worth, free and clear of all um, liabilities and liquid. It, liquid. it was liquid money. 250,000. I don't know what it is today because it's been a long, long time since I've looked at the rules. But most of the time when somebody comes in to buy, they may have a hundred grand or something along those lines. But if they give you all a hundred thousand of that money, what are they going to run the business with? And, you know, there's, 
all kinds of elements that have to be considered there. What about the uh, accounts receivable? What about the inventory? What about the cash in the bank? If you buy it for a hundred thousand, does that cash in the bank go to the buyer or is that your cash in addition to the cash that he's putting in? And if it's in addition to the bank money that you get and the, um, the accounts receivable, and the hundred thousand, how's he going to run that business? There's no working capital there. So typically what will happen is they'll come in and say, okay, I'll buy the business for a hundred thousand. Here's 30. And then over the next two years, um, if you hit these target numbers, then I will pay you a hundred and fifteen thousand or a hundred and twenty thousand. So the buyer, the owner says, Oh, great. Well, I can stick it out another couple of years. I'll get a salary as a, as a consultant to the new owner. And that is the fool's play. I'm sorry to, sorry to say that because you don't, if, if for the owner that's selling the business to the buyer, mm. right? The reason is, is that the buyer is the new owner. And as you as a, as the former owner say, we'll do this, this and this. And the new owner doesn't do that and doesn't hit the numbers, guess who doesn't get paid? You as the old owner. So they always end up taking a haircut, right? And a discount to what they were expecting plus two years of their additional of their time for a business that they no longer own. And some fee along the way for consulting and advising, but not full time. I've heard the exact same thing too in that um, if somebody's selling the shop, it is not good to have some sort of longer term agreement, like a year earnout, what's called, because of that exact same reason, which is the values and goals of you as a previous owner and the new buyer um, or new owner rather are not generally in line. In that, the new owner will have their ideas; they're not going to want to come out of the gate spending money, like. The, the previous owner, you may want to reinvest everything as much as you can. It's all, you know, it's whether good or bad, but the new uh, owner does not want to do that. They want to be, you know, start generating more of a profit. They may have some sort of growth goals, but over time, especially that divergence of goals tends to spread out further. further. And I've talked to some other owners who've gone through this and have similar experiences there. Now, the flip side though is, I've spoken to one that their earnout was so large that they were that helped really align a little bit more and make them want to stay because of it. But anyway, that's a really great point, Mark. And and for somebody who's looking to go through this, to be very cautious of. Um, I'll say if oh wait, were you gonna say something, Stephen? Because I want I was gonna say more often than not that divergence. I mean, that's why me and Jed had to buy out one of our business partners. Because it just was always this, why are we doing this? Well, we've right. always done it that way. Well, right. this and, and it just, it got so frustrating to the point. And I was like, okay, what is it going to take for you, for me to, to continue doing this? It's either me or you. And I, I'd, I'd rather buy you right now. I don't see a situation where the person that's been there for 30 years is giddy about coming in for another two years unless they really like you. <laughs> I don't know, Mark, what yeah. do you think about that? Or a huge payout. Yeah. yeah or a huge, or a huge payout. And this is, or a huge really, payout. Yeah. It, it, this is a really unstable area. Having worked with a number of business brokers, you know, in the last few years, um, 
what I found, and I think I mentioned this on the other podcast, is that businesses below 10 million, the number of businesses that are prepared to sell at the time that they come to a business broker is somewhere between one and 9%, less than 10%. And what that means is their business is not, you know, it's like a fixer upper. You know, if you were in the real estate business, it would be a fix and flip model. And you've got, uh, you need a new roof, you need new carpeting, it's got to get painted, we got to upgrade the utilities, the kitchen's a wreck, it's got, still got the O'Keefe and Merritt uh, uh, oven from 1955. And, yeah, and it's just like, I just I just went through this because there was, somebody was storing uh, an old O'Keefe and Merritt thing from like the 40s, mid-century thing. Um, and anyway... I, I diverge there. Anyway, so it's, it's like you look at this and it's all the things that are wrong with the house that have to get fixed to bring it up to current market value. And it takes anywhere from a year to two years to do it. That's why I think that this podcast and the, the two episodes are so important because even if you're not ready to sell, even if you have no intention of selling, if you treat your business like your exit plan is based on the the sale of a top-notch property, your business is going to be so much more fulfilling because you're going to be generating a profit for yourself. You're going to be, you're going to be paying yourself. You're going to have free cash flow, which an investor is going to be interested in. And you may not ever want to sell your business once you get it into a condition where it's running properly. Most of the time, I see p- people that are working their tail off seven days a week I did this for years. I love to work, but at some point you just get tired of it and you get tired of the BS and the pain in the butt customers. And it's like, I'm done. I'm over this. I want to get rid of it. Well, when you go out there, why do you want to get rid of it? Because it's really not working. Who wants to buy a business that's not working? So then all of a sudden you get the slap in the face that all this work and I've got nothing to show for it, or it's only worth 40 or $50,000. And I've got 250, $300,000 worth of equipment. You know, the, the value is the liquidation value of the equipment at that point. So, I, yeah, I'm going to go off on a, on a, I'm going to say something here and, and, and I don't know if this is right or wrong. Shops that have money left over at the end of the year and they always think to go buy equipment, wouldn't it be a better investment to pay a little bit more for really great middle management? Right. So, like, if, you know, the market says, uh, screen printers are making 20 bucks an hour and you've got a little bit of money left over at the end of the year, that's when you bring the coaches in, the consultants, that's where you beef up your team and turn it into a fantasy team, right? And that's how you grow response. I mean, what I mean by that is like middle management, right? Like, you know, we're, we took on funding this year so that I can hire a CTO and a CFO and having a VP of sales and, it's pretty sweet having them around you because they're much smarter than me. You know, um, I don't know, Mark, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, I'm again, it depends on what your end strategy is. Sure. Your end strategy is exit at some valuation. So you already have sort of a framework and it's driven by your investors. Your investors priority is, is going to take precedence over, you know, your former owner priority. Sure. And as I'm a result, an employee of it, yeah, you're an employee of this new company, and maybe a part owner of it. I don't know, but but, but don't you think, of regardless though, uh, even of the investment, that 
that is, that's an interesting point, right? Because it's like, mm-hmm. I'd wonder if the ROI is greater on that than it is a piece of equipment. I mean, sure, well, maybe I, you could print yeah, more, absolutely. you could print more efficiently or something. But what if you could not be there for five hours of the week or right. uh, problems could just be taken care of before they get to you or almost like buying a lifestyle in a way or a better like lifestyle. Could, could you splurge on an expensive, you know, top tier manager to liberate you well, versus buying the next automatic, you know? So this is a this is a huge thing that I always look at right away. Is I look at the profitability and the margins in the customer base. I do a a deep customer analysis to determine what are we actually working with. And more times than not, seventy five percent of the customers you're doing business with, you should not be doing business with. And if you took seventy five percent of the customers away, you're only going to lose about eleven percent or Nine, you know, 11 to 15% is my historical in our industry of top line revenue with the lower 75. I mean, think of all the 24 piece and 12 piece and sub 36 piece orders that people do in this industry. They're everywhere. And so they're actually losing money on that. I had one client where we fired 75% of their clients and their net profit went up by $57,000 with 75% less impact on their time. And the second year, their profit went up $300,000 on top of what they'd already done because now they had so much extra time to lavish on their best customers that were profitable to begin with. And that created massive growth from their most profitable customer base. So they didn't need more equipment. They just needed more time. And the more time, how do you invest it? Do you invest it with more people? Do you invest it in more attention? Do you invest it with more sales? This all comes down to the strategy of how you want to run your business. And again, since nobody ever builds a business plan in this business, they never understand about business. They're just go, go, go. They're busy being busy. And, and I was interviewing someone the other day that was um, that had previously worked at a much bigger, you know, not Halo, but similar to something like that. And right. they said, they said we got really good. Yeah, we have presses here that can print. We have you know ten automatics, but we also know every broker in the country or every every contract decorator, and we use them just as much, and we leverage them, and we do what's most profitable in house. And so I think that what you talk about there is learning to be elastic so you can focus on what you're good at. Um, right. you know, we started using a tool called Printful. If anyone knows what Printful mm-hmm. is, sure. Um, and they're a little expensive, you know, but they will, you know, ship anywhere in the world, $10 for a DTG front on a Gildan. We just send all, if we sell for 15 or 18, we'll just push it through there and, and just ship it out. We don't it's even done. look at it. Right. right. Um, and, 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 and so that we can focus on, on the stuff that's going to make us money. And so um, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Bruce, I know we were time boxing this. What's the next big topic that we need to get through? Okay. So there's, you talk about Mark, six types of buyers here. Um, can we talk a little bit more about what are they? Maybe one of the best to worst is the, is the, <laughs> if there's a way to sort it. So you've got, you know, family member, you've got employees, individual competitors, strategic buyer, and more financial. Um, what do you think are the best few that you think can get the seller the best valuation of the business, but also the, the maybe the cleanest 
transaction? If it's a family member, you're not going to get the maximum value out of that. All right. Because so there's all these relationships, off. right? Succession value is always at a discount to what the market yeah. value is going to be. Financial buyer, um, they're hardcore. That's really somebody that's looking at like, should I buy Apple stock or Tesla stock or should I buy this business? They're not looking to be in the business. They're looking for a turnkey operation that's going to run and they're, that they're going to get a check from a dividend or the value is going to go up based on how the CEO is running the company. So a financial buyer is generally in the 10 million and up range. I think the best place to look right now is a strategic buyer. And a strategic okay. buyer is somebody that sees your business as a key asset to grow their business. And they're looking at it. Like to, maybe another to, shop or, or brand or. Exactly. Uh, or, you know, promotional products. Your biggest, your biggest customer. We've seen that. Yep. Yep. But as a biggest customer, that's a one and done kind of thing. Meaning that if they buy you, uh, they may be a brand, they may be a clothing brand. They're not a screen printer. I've seen this happen a lot of times where that big brand buys the printer because the printer wasn't making any money. The reason they weren't making any money is because the brand wasn't paying them enough. So if the brand thinks, oh, I'm paying these guys X number of dollars, if I buy them, I can produce it for less myself. It doesn't work that way. So, um, those kinds of things you have to really be careful of and you have to look at the, at the business. And, and as an owner of a business, I would never do a workout with my biggest customer because they're, they're going to realize how hard it is to run a screen printing business. So for me, a strategic buyer or someone that is coming from a past experience in the industry <coughs> or a collateral part of the industry that's dealing with promotional products, those kinds of things that understand the mechanics of working closely with a screen printer and the complexity of that, but has business experience. What do you, what do you think Mark about shops combining forces? So like, um, you know, we recognize that we don't do great at DTG on demand. We don't have digital squeegees, Polaris's, Cornets, right. whatever. And there might be a shop, you know, two hours away from me. That's really good at that. What are your thoughts on on owners kind of coming together or a bigger shop buying one that's slightly smaller and being like, hey, we one plus one is three here. Have you seen that happen? Yes. So that's basically a merger. Mm -hmm. um, and so essentially at that point, you put them together to get a compound result. You really have to be aligned on mission, vision, and core values. And if you don't have crystal clear vision on what that is, clarity in that for your particular company. And core values, I think five, maybe seven core values maximum. And if you talk with the potential company that you're trying to uh, merge or, or acquire with that, they've got to, they've got to be aligned with that. So if integrity is a big thing for you, like telling the truth and not you know, bending the, the situation with a client or whatever, promising something you can't deliver. I would ask questions that are very gray. Like, what would you do in a case like this? What would you do in a case like that? Think back on your own experience where your core values were challenged 
ask those kinds of questions of your potential partner or acquiring, you know, acquiree, see what they say. And if they align with your answer, then, then you've got, you know, the basis from which you can move forward. Would you say that it's probably cleaner even too that someone buys someone else versus merging that, that feels very messy. You know, it really depends. It depends, depends on, on the, the individual situation. Um, you know, it just it feels like it's better to have one boss in a way, you know, instead of like two trying to like. But, but I've seen some really great shops where the owners complement each other really well. Like I, I've seen there are some really great shops in our industry where, you know, they kind of know their roles and, and they're able to do it like a happy marriage, you know. Uh, and I wonder as as we, you know, talk about this, if there is even a move to say like. You know, um, why don't we, cause, cause Bruce, like we interviewed a couple shops, um, the guys up in Canada and they, they're building shops geographically across Canada to be, to be able to like have a belt across there. Right. And so it's like, right, that's called it, a roll up. Yeah. And, and so maybe there, there's an instance where, you know, a shop in LA and a shop in New York and a shop in the Midwest all kind of put their heads together and be like, well, wait a second, we can actually rip through this if, if we do this. You right. know, that's know. actually happening in the, the, the team dealer space. Um, mm-hmm. I was just Absolutely. at sports. BSN or, right. BSN, BSN's done it, although they're kind of the, the boss, but there's one um, group called Game One. O-N-E. And I believe it was, uh, someone may have to you know read the story, but it's out there. It's, I think it's like three pretty large shops, like, you know, seven, maybe, or, or I'm sorry, like, I guess when they were like 30 or 50 million or they're pretty large team dealer businesses came together to form one larger conglomerate that is now going to go out and roll up smaller ones. And uh, to to compete against BSN essentially, um, but that is one example of it that was happening. I was like, wow, that's it's pretty so interesting. So this, this is where the big fish eats the little fish. So the big fish eats the little fish. So they can become bigger, so that they can be eaten by a really big fish. So in the case of BSN, they were part of a bigger fashion group that included spirit wear and team and sports, sporting goods, and all of this kind of stuff, and they got acquired by. Bain Capital. Bain Capital is a huge private equity, multi-billion dollar, big fish player. They buy all kinds of businesses in all kinds of industries. So where working with another shop really makes sense is one shop's got a really good sales organization and a good sales person, and the other shop is super strong technically and super strong with efficiency. So, you know, let's say that they were, they had somebody like a Marshall Atkinson that was running production and is, could turn orders really quick. And the other team had a sales, uh, operation that was just, you know, kicking tail and they were outsourcing beyond their own cap- capability to a Kevin, that. A Kevin Baumgart, Kevin and Marshall. It, exactly. There exactly. That's exactly Combo, correct. Wombo. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so this is where you get complementary practices. The ones that you have a challenge with is where you have two people that are the same because then it's my way or the highway. No, it's my way or the highway. Then you get this internal conflict. But when you have that complementary relationship, then it's like rocket fuel. You know, it's sort of like the visionary and the implementer and the traction Mm, model. Yeah, as long as people have their lanes. 
Right. They know where they where they are and they know what's going and they know that they align with core value and mission and vision. You're good to go. It's just it, it feels hard. Maybe that's just in theory. I mean, imagine Farag, like, you know, you merge with another shop like you're you, you have it the way you want. Like this is what you thought you've had well, like, years I, of I even, forming your I opinion. Joke, it's like you and I could never go into business together. I think we'd, I'd kill you or. You'd, yeah. Yeah. I'd definitely <laughs> well, kill you. We, we'd win. And then you. Yeah. Oh wait, no, we're together. <laughs> <laughs> it just it just wouldn't work. You yeah, know? but that's what I, I'm saying. Like it's hard. I I think it's hard, and maybe there's ego. Maybe there's like it, it's just like it's alignment. It's alignment. There's a there is a conflict between mission, vision, and core value. And it's not like the owner is like only the salesperson, right? Like they're they're doing everything, so it's it's very hard to create that. But it so okay. Let me let me help summarize some of this then. So family member, we said. Um, it's lower nice, value. you know, create a, a legacy, you know, if you care more about that, um, lower valuation financially. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the kids have to be interested in it, um, or cousin or brother, or whoever, uh, we didn't talk about employees, like as in a co-op type thing, it feels, I, I don't know. Have you seen That's that work? Where, that works better for bigger shops. And when I say a bigger shop above 10 million. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. at okay. that point they've got organizational structure. They people in the company know what they're doing. The people that are in production have no interest in sales or no interest in the admin side of it. Uh, they know that they're working in production, and the sales guys know they're selling. You know, so they're not in a position to literally get thrown into another department. There's structure there, and this is where the tiered. Uh, evolution of a business comes in. When I look at a business, and I've said this before, there's five distinctive organizational levels between a startup and 10 million. And there's a lot of companies that are running at level two when they're at the top of the level five. So they're running super inefficiently because they're, they're working with, you know, something that was designed for a million dollar company and they may be 5 million or 10 million in size. So you, you're, you're a house of cards that could fall apart with one big customer leaving or the sales guy leaves or your key production manager leaves with accounts or whatever. Um, the business is unstable at that point. And, so, and to, to be employee owned, do you technically have to be a C Corp, a C Corp? There's a lot is, of, is there's, that, I think there's if a you lot have of 200 shareholders, it's like, uh, S Corp under it's an 200 easy, it's, an, it's, an e, it's an ESOP. So it's an employee stock ownership program is the way it's normally structured. And I, I don't know the taxation rules of it. This is where a, a competent tax advisor yeah. needs yeah, to be consulted on the front end. Yeah, we, we had to transition to a C Corp when Mark invested on, in us. Um, and that was different because it changed the whole ownership structure of it. We had to incorporate in Delaware, which is kind of goofy. Um, there's some funny things about how Delaware operates, yes. but yeah, I mean, as I think what you said there, Mark, that level two through five, I'm just like sitting in my head being like, Oh boy, we're <laughs> level two that, that, five. Yeah. I'm, I'm the five of the two. <laughs> um, okay. Bruce, what were the other ones? So you said, we said employee, strategic. Uh, yeah. I have individual, but I think some of these maybe mesh unless you think differently, Mark. I mean, the, essentially, the cost. Yeah. yeah, like there's individual, financial, competitor, and strategic, which which have different sort of motivations. Mark saying strategic can get best financial outcome, and it's really finding. 
and and I sent you this interesting tweet the other day where the company was talking about how they stayed close to potential buyers for a, an extended amount of time. So maybe if the thought process was maybe Start a year, early. like I may be interested or more. He was actually saying from the beginning that they were partnering with them and they were aware of them and they they kept in touch and all this stuff. And it made it easier to say, hey, why don't you, you know, bias like look this is what it could look like and so on and it lined up really well uh and it, and it set it up so so staying close with them staying close with um, um different things you see depending on the niche that you're and, in and i business. think to your point bruce an acquisition okay. or a sale doesn't happen it, like the relationship is usually like a couple year process yeah. i would i would imagine and then then you start flirting with the idea it could be three, four, five years from when you meet someone to when they're a partner in your business. And I feel like that's totally common. Mark, would you agree yes, or ab- what do you see absolutely. normally? Absolutely. And, and to Bruce's point about uh, competitors, I don't see competitors as competitors. I see it as coopetition. And so if you approach the marketplace as coopetition, like how do you cooperate to grow both businesses? You find your niche, you find a niche that's complementary to them. So, for instance, um, if I'm in a super competitive market for T-shirts and the market is one guy is a $2 million or $3 million T-shirt printer and I can't compete with him on scale or whatever, I decide I'm going to start to print multicolor nylon jackets. Well, no T-shirt printer on earth wants to print multicolor nylon jackets, but if I'm a specialist in that area, Every T-shirt screen printer now becomes my coopetition. They're my competition, but I'm increasing their scope and their range of uh, skills and can complement them and offer packages and bundles of things that they couldn't normally offer before. And I become an attractive element once they've grown the business to incorporate my skill set that's different than their skill set. So there's a lot of strategies that can be done here. This is why this discussion is so important is that if you begin with the end in mind that you want to sell your business, you're going to look at the world, the market, your employees, your investments, everything from a different set of lenses than you are right now of busy being busy going out selling anything that walks through the door. I think we all, uh, I'll wrap up with this. I, I mean, I think, I think every owner should really strive to create the life that feels like fun to work on the business, but also is not so deep into the day to day that, you know, you're stressed out and you're always just putting out fires. And I, and I, and I think that takes time to create, but it's like a nice North star for, for a personal goal to be able to get there. Um, Because, you know, to your point, Mark, like, you, I think you could do it now and maybe you could do it for the next five, 10 years, but there is a point where it's like, it, you know, it is nice. Like you should leave. It's your business. You should leave at noon to go play golf on a Monday or not come in because right. you, you know, on a Friday because you got your kids things or, or whatever to, and, and to let the business be formed around you a little bit less of you forming around the business. All right. I think we covered it all. Is that good? <laughs> that was awesome. Mark, we Thanks, appreciate Mark. this. This is There's awesome. There's so much. There's so much. We could go on for days. I know. There really is. There, There is. You said something right now, which, which was, you know, doing something with purpose. 
right? Doing your business where you enjoy it, right? There's, there's a concept which we could actually do a fantastic podcast around. And that is what you love to do, what you're really good at, what you get paid well for, and what the world needs. And if you have all four of those elements, you have purpose and meaning in life. Is that purpose-driven life? Well, it could be purpose-driven life, but the concept is actually Japanese, and it's called Ikigai. And Ikigai is the Japanese term for the purpose of life. Cool. Cool. But yeah, that we could we could build a really good <laughs> good programming on that. Cheers to Ikigai. guy. Do you have your cold brew jug? Cheers. I have uh, Bruce. I uh, thanks for putting a promo product order in through Campus Inc. They put one, <laughs> on, they put one on my desk as a uh, as a that's as awesome. a gift. So that's a good, water, that's a good bottle. water bottle. I'm glad I, I I'm glad I nailed it this time. The first time Bruce always tries to pick the weirdest products from the catalog, <laughs> and half the time I'm like Bruce. I, he's like, "Have you ever ordered this before?" I'm like, "No, I have never ordered that before." <laughs> and sure enough, I was wrong. like, "Oh, yeah, this is uh, polar, what can go wrong? You can polar go wrong camel very quickly." Yeah, we've we've been down that road. All right. Anyways, thanks for listening to the episode. We appreciate you. We appreciate you, Mark, especially your time in this um, dire moving period of your of your life. <laughs> I got movers going back and forth in the background over here. It's hilarious. I'm like, quiet, quiet. Uh, don't forget to check out printhustlers.com for this year's Print Hustlers Conference, November 5th, 6th, and 7th, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. It's going to be exciting. Printhustlers.com. I'm Bruce from Printavo. Stephen Fair got a Campus Inc. Mr. I mean, I'm sorry, Dr. Mark Udre out of <laughs> California in the new office. All right. We'll see you in the next episode.